Let's turn in our Bibles to Genesis 9. We'll read verses 1 to 17. Genesis 9, 1 to 17. This is the Noahic covenant. The Noahic covenant. The covenant that God made with Noah. But it's not just with Noah, but Noah and his descendants. This actually begins in 8 verse 20. Chapter 8 verse 20, which we saw last time when Noah and his family left the ark. He offered sacrifices and God made promise to him or promises to him. Those promises and commandments are continued into this chapter. So 8.20 to 9.17 deal with this Noahic covenant. Let's begin at chapter 9, verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the fear of you and the terror of you shall be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky with everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand they are given. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And surely I will require your lifeblood from every beast I will require it. And from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. And as for you, be fruitful and multiply, populate the earth abundantly, and multiply in it. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you, and with your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth. And I establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood, neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. I set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. And it shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to study the Holy Word of God. It is the living and abiding Word of God. And we pray, Lord, that we will handle this Word accurately, that we'll please you and glorify you by what we learn. We'll be obedient, not just hearers of the Word, but doers of the Word. We know that this is your Word, granted by your Holy Spirit, written by your prophets and apostles. Thank you for it, and we pray that you'll increase our faith and give us great confidence that this word is what we need. Lord, it is the word of life. It is the word of truth. It is the word of the gospel of our, uh, our salvation, the word of grace. We pray that you'll give us greater faith to believe all these truths that are written herein. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. 
chapter 9, verse 1, God continues to speak to Noah. He continues to speak to Noah. He spoke to him before as a prophet, before the flood. During the time of the flood, there is also likely close communion between Noah and God. And now, after the flood, when God commands him to leave the ark, he leaves the ark, he offers sacrifices, God makes a promise that he's not going to curse the ground in the same way again, and then he says that the earth will continue with its cycles, its annual cycles. That's all in chapters 6, 7, and 8. He continues his discourse or his explanation to Noah. He's trying to not only instruct Noah, but to comfort him and to guide him in the way he should be. Not just Noah, but all of the descendants of Noah. Noah in particular, because Noah just saw complete and utter destruction of the whole earth. He saw darkness, he saw misery, he saw death everywhere. He escaped it, but that's what he experienced. So, to rejuvenate and to restore the earth, it's necessary for God to give him specific instructions so that he obeys God's command and God's purposes for the earth and for mankind may unfold through Noah and his descendants. That's what we have in verse nine, uh, chapter 9, verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. This is a blessing of God. The blessing of God is joined with the command of God. This we saw in Genesis 1, verse 28. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Before sin entered the world, God told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The blessing of God is joined with the command of God. The command of God in this case has to do with them populating the earth, reproducing abundantly on the earth. This is repeated to Noah and to Noah's sons. Remember, this is not only to Noah and his sons. Immediately they are to obey that. They don't have any children yet. They are to obey that. Noah's sons don't have any children yet. But after that too, we know from other scriptures that it's a command and an expectation for all of us to be this way, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Notice, He repeats it. This is how important it is. He repeats it in verse 7. And as for you, be fruitful and multiply. Populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. Notice there is no condition, there's no qualification as to, well, after a certain number of people on the earth, then the earth cannot contain all the humans. There's nothing like that. There's no concept like that. There's no concept like that because God intends the earth to remain until he destroys it again. So there is nothing that no one can do. There's no human that can do anything to destroy the earth. There is no animal that can do anything to destroy the earth. Not not even the plants or the trees or the insects can do anything to destroy the whole earth. Only God is able to destroy the whole earth, let alone aliens or space aliens. There is no such thing, but they can't do it either. Nothing is going to be able to do it. Only God is able to destroy the earth again. So, meantime, what should we do as people, as humans, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth? It is assumed that this will happen within marriage. It's assumed that this will happen in marriage and that any deviation from this is a sin. 
Why is this assumed? Because Genesis 2, 18 to 25, established marriage between a man and a woman, husband and wife, marriage and then family from that. No other combination is acceptable to God. Not two men, not five men, not two women, not ten women together, not a man with an animal, and not a woman with an animal, not a woman with a tree, not a man with a tree, or any other combination. It doesn't work that way. It is unnatural. It is perverse and corrupt, according to Romans 1, 26 to 27. It is against nature. It's against the created order. So when God blesses them, male and female, to be fruitful and multiply, it's only in the context of marriage. Let's reiterate the point that it is for all generations, successive generations. Notice with me, as is written on the board here, that this passage first is after the flood. So after sin is in the world, God still expects humans to reproduce and multiply. It's not just if we have an ideal world, if we have a perfect uh, utopic world, therefore we can have children. No, even in this fallen, sinful world, we should have children. It says, be married and have children. Psalms 112 to 113 explain the blessing of having children. Psalms 127 and 128 explain the blessings of having children. Proverbs 31, 10 to 31, the excellent or virtuous wife, she has a household, she has children, and her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, because of her godliness. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 to 15, but women shall be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue with love and sanctity with self-restraint. It is the role of the woman, the wife, to bear children and to raise a godly household. The same is said of the young widows. The young widows should not be uh, living a wanton life, not living a busybody kind of life, gossiping and slandering and going from house to house. Instead, they should remarry, bear children, keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for reproach. For some have already turned aside to follow Satan. One follows Satan if one does not Get married, bear children, keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for reproach. That's what the scripture says. First Timothy 5, 14 and 15. As well, Titus 2, 3 to 5, the older women should be teaching the younger women to love their husbands, to love their children, to keep house, and live a godly life. That's what the older women should teach the younger women. All of these passages after Genesis 9, all assume that it is good and godly and right to be married and to bear children and to raise a godly family. This is what we should be about. This is what he's establishing and reiterating to Noah. Even though Noah had only darkness and misery right before him, he just experienced it for over a year, the earth is devastated, so he, of all people, could have said, and, uh, or could have disobeyed, he and his sons could have disobeyed, saying, no, 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 we're not going to do that because it's so miserable here. How are we going to survive on this earth? And we don't know if God is going to punish us soon after we start having our first child or second child. We don't know. They could have easily said that, but God is telling them, no, it's not going to be that way. And I want you to reproduce. They needed to have faith faith enough that God would 
preserve them and cause their posterity to live long on the earth until which time God wanted to destroy the earth again. And we know from 2 Peter 3 that he will one day do so, but this time with fire, a worldwide global fire instead of water to destroy the earth when Christ returns. Verse 2. And the fear of you and the terror of you shall be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky, with everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are given. The fear of man, the terror of man, is to be on the beasts, the birds, and every creeping thing, and on the fish. They are in the hand of man. God is here establishing and showing to, the, to Noah and all of us that there are parameters and boundaries between the animals and man. That the animals are not going to be so numerous as to overcome man. God is going to protect man and preserve man by his goodness and faithfulness. He's not going to allow the wild beasts to overcome man. Just as in the past, God did not permit that to happen. He did not permit the wild beasts to come and to destroy all humans. Even now, he's not going to allow that. In the ark, there certainly would have been ferocious wild animals on the ark, but God did not permit them to destroy the people and even all the other animals while they were on the ark for over a year. In the same way, he's promising that from this day forward, there will be boundaries that are established between God and animals. I mean, I'm sorry, between man and animals because of the sovereignty of God. Notice also other passages that speak of God's ability to control the animals and even the wild animals because he wants to preserve man. And not only because he wants to preserve man, but he can also use the animals the wild animals, to destroy men whenever he wishes, here or there, because of their sins. Deuteronomy chapter 7, Deuteronomy 7, verse 14. You shall be blessed above all peoples. There shall be no male or female barren among you or among your cattle. God's ability to cause the people and the cattle to reproduce showing his control and sovereignty over them. Deuteronomy 28, Deuteronomy 28, 38, 28, 38. You shall bring out much seed to the field, but you shall gather in little, for the locust shall consume it. You shall plant and cultivate vineyards, but you shall neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes, for the worm shall devour them. And also verse 42. The cricket shall possess all your trees and the produce of your ground. This is a passage in which a curse is pronounced, primarily in this chapter, a curse is pronounced, and God's saying that I have this control over the worms and the crickets to harm you whenever I call on them to harm you, to harm you and your produce. Further, Psalm 104, Psalm 104, the whole of the chapter shows God's sovereignty and control over all of his creation. The whole chapter does so. Let's pick it up at verse 14, Psalm 104, verse 14. 
He causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the labor of man, so that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine which makes man's heart glad, so that he may make his face glisten with oil and food which sustains man's heart. The trees of the Lord drink their fill, the cedars of Lebanon which he planted, where the birds build their nests and the stork whose home is the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats. The cliffs are a refuge for the rock badgers. He made the moon for the seasons. The sun knows the place of its setting. You appoint darkness and it becomes night, in which all the beasts of the forest prowl about. The young lions roar after their prey and seek their food from God. When the sun rises, they withdraw and lie down in their dens. Man goes forth to his work and to his labor until evening. He controls not only the vegetation, but he controls the animals. He controls the domestic animals and the wild animals. He controls them all. He gives the darkness over to the wild animals for them to get their food. But then when daylight comes, they withdraw, and then man goes out and he works. He keeps a separation. He keeps boundaries for both man and animals to protect man and to preserve man on the earth. This is God assuring Noah and all of us of these truths. Verse 3, chapter 9, Genesis 9, verse 3. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. Now God says, I give all of the animals as food for you. As I, I give all to you as I gave the green plant. You may recall in Genesis 1, 29 and 30 that when God first commanded Adam and Eve to eat, he gave them the green plants. He gave them vegetation to eat. He did not grant to them to eat flesh. Right. Now, at this point, there are a couple of interpretations. One interpretation says that there was a prohibition of eating flesh until this point after the flood. That is the one that I prefer, that there, there was a prohibition of eating flesh until this point after the flood, and then from this point onward, flesh is permitted. From this point until the new heavens and the new earth, flesh is permitted. The other interpretation is that after the fall, when God presented the first sacrifice in Genesis 3.21, from that point onward, flesh was permitted to be eaten. And that it's just reiterated here in chapter 9, verse 3. That position I don't take, but there are some interpreters who take that position. I believe that flesh was permitted at this point onward. So in the past, whenever between Genesis 3 and between Genesis 3 and Genesis 9, this point, when sacrifices were offered, they were offered for sacrifice, but not for consumption. And it is likely that they were burnt offerings like 8.20 says. Genesis 8.20 says that Noah offered every clean, bird, clean animal and clean bird and offered them as burnt offerings on the altar. A burnt offering is completely consumed. A whole burnt offering it is also called because it's completely consumed. Therefore, it's likely that they did not partake of flesh unless they sinned against God. They did not partake of flesh before this point of Genesis 9, verse 3. Then, a prohibition, verse 4. 
Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. The one restriction is not to eat the blood because the life of the flesh is in the blood. This is repeated in Leviticus 17, 10, and 11, that in the Mosaic Covenant, that blood was prohibited because the life of the flesh was in the blood. Therefore, do not partake of the blood. He wanted some reverence, some respect, some, some kind of restraint for man not to eat blood. And in fact, blood, because it has life, would be a reminder to them to practice restraint and to consider the life that God gives, not just the physical life, but the eternal life that God gives, to think about life as originating from God, to think about, not just think about it, but to obey it in a spiritual sense, to so understand the spiritual implications of that. Now, there are some interpreters from this point that, that say, under the Noahic covenant and then under the Mosaic covenant, the partaking of blood was prohibited, but not now. They say now one can partake or eat blood. That is, there are all kinds of cultures. There are um, South American cultures, there are European cultures, there's Asian cultures, African cultures that have certain kinds of food that have blood in them. Blood soup, blood, so blood sausage, so on and so forth. There's all kinds of different foods. And some interpreters say that today it's okay because this was only a Noahic and Mosaic prohibition. That is Noahic in Genesis 9 and Mosaic in Leviticus 17. But now it's okay. I take a different approach to that. I take a different interpretation. I believe that according to Acts 15, 20, and 29, where it also mentions the partaking of blood, it prohibits it. It prohibits it in these two verses. There's a, a controversy between the Jews and the Gentiles and the way of salvation. What is the proper way of salvation? And the apostles make a point to make sure that the Gentiles avoid certain things. Certain things. These are not the only things they should avoid, but these are emphasized as things they should avoid. Verse 20, Acts 15, verse 20. But that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. And also verse 29. That you abstain from things sacrificed to idols and from blood and from things strangled, sorry, and from fornication. If you keep yourselves free from such things, you will do well. Farewell. All right, so these, this is the instruction, the practical instruction to overcome this division between Jew and Gentile. Of course, earlier they say, we're all saved by grace through faith in Christ. That was the impetus or the foundation of this controversy. But then in terms of practical manifestation of true faith, he expects, or they expect, that the Gentiles will abstain from these things. We know he, this is not a complete list. Yeah. Because obviously... If it says that they should abstain from fornication and from these other things, does it mean that they can lie? Does it mean that they can steal from one another? Does it mean that they can dishonor their parents? No, it doesn't mean any of that. It, of course they're supposed to avoid those sins too. 
This is just a list, a brief list that emphasizes certain things that they ought to make sure that they don't transgress in their seek uh, or their search for unity with each other, with Jews and Gentiles. That's the way I take Acts 15. So I take it as reiterating this Noahic covenant. By the way, all of these aspects of the Noahic covenant are for every generation. They are perennial. All of these aspects of the Noahic covenant, even the Jewish interpretations, the Orthodox Jewish interpretations of old and in modern Jewish interpretations, take it that way. That the things that are prescribed here under the Noahic covenant are not bound like the Mosaic covenant for uh, for the Mosaic period under the old covenant and specifically for the nation of Israel. The Noahic covenant applies to all mankind. It applies to all mankind to be fruitful, multiply the the fear of the an, the animals' fear of man, um, everything being food, just like the green plant. All of these, and even what we are about to read in verses five to seven, which is verse five, and surely I will require your lifeblood from every beast. I will require it. Now, he assures us here, Noah first and then all of us, that God is going to require the life of the beast when the beast harms human life. When it destroys human life, God will destroy the beast. For example, Exodus 21, Exodus 21, 28, 28 to 32. Exodus 21, 28. And if an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall surely be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall go unpunished. If, however, an ox was previously in the habit of goring and its owner has been warned, yet he does not confine it and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned and its owner also shall be put to death. If a ransom is demanded of him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is demanded of him. Whether it gores a son or a daughter, it shall be done to him according to the same rule. If the ox gores a male or a female slave, the owner shall give his or her master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. There we have a reiteration of what's here in Genesis 9, verse 5, the first part of verse 5. The first part. That is, the shedding of human blood, the shedding of innocent human blood is so important to God or so egregious in the sight of God that God will take care of the wild animals that do so. Innocent human blood. He's not talking about punishment in the, in the sense that if... Uh, human has done wickedly and God sends wild animals like he did in 2 Kings 17. In 2 Kings 17, the people were worshiping idols, so God sent lions among them to kill these idolaters. He's not talking about that situation. He's talking about innocent human blood. When animals do that, like Exodus 21, that the animal should be killed. And if the owner knew that the animal, his ox, was in the habit of goring 
and he didn't confine it, he didn't kill it, he didn't do whatever was necessary, and it kills a human, then even the owner should die. That's how important innocent human blood is to God. Furthermore, verse 5, And from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. What does he mean? He means something like what he just said about if animals kill humans, and he further explains in verse 6 what he means. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. Because we are created in the image of God, the only payment, the only recompense, the only just penalty for innocent human blood being shed is for the human who killed his fellow man for him to be put to death. This is talking about capital punishment. It's talking about equal payment. That is, the value of an innocent human life can only be paid or repaid or punished by the murderer being put to death. The murderer ought to be put to death. That's what chapter 9, verse 5, the second part of the verse, and verse 6 are explaining. And the reason we are created in the image of God. It doesn't do to give a land full of trees if, if a human was innocently put to death. That's not payment enough. That's not good enough or anything else like that. It's supposed to be the murderer who is executed for putting an innocent man to death. We know that this already occurred. Remember, it happened between Cain and Abel. Yeah. Abel was an innocent man, and he was also a righteous man. He was a godly man and an innocent man, and Cain murdered him. We know that, that it is murder, and that is the biblical term for it, from 1 John 3, 14 and 15, but also from our, the account in Genesis chapter 4. Genesis 4, 5 to 15. Also notice that in Genesis 6, one of the reasons for the flood, the global flood, was the rampant violence that was on the earth. Violence means physical violence. Rampant violence. Notice it says in chapter 6, verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. Verse 13. Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them, and behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. There was physical violence, and physical violence biblically is when innocent human life is destroyed. The perpetrators are called murderers. Okay, a clarification, a few clarifications. Because this is in the Noahic Covenant, I believe that this continues today. That is, the execution of a murderer is the only valid payment for the murderer putting an innocent human to death. So, the government... The magistrates, the authorities, the officials, the political officials, the kings, the rulers, whatever we call them, they are to investigate the matter. They are to be judicious. They're to be fair-minded. They're to investigate and have the evidence presented by the testimony of at least two or three witnesses 
according to Deuteronomy 17, according to Deuteronomy 19, according to 2 Corinthians 13, 1, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, these witnesses are to be come for, forward with evidence, and when the evidence is deemed to be conclusive by the judge, then he is to sentence the murderer to death. That's execution. That's what should happen to all murderers. We know that this continues into the New Testament for a few reasons. For a few reasons. The first one is Romans 13. Romans 13, verse 1. Romans 13, verse 1. Verses 1 to 7. Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. Therefore it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Why do we pay taxes? The basic and fundamental reason is for the government to restrain evil. To restrain evil. And that evil may take place within the nation by criminals within the nation. But it also may take place by enemies outside the nation seeking to undermine the nation. That is the fundamental role of government, to protect its own people within the nation and outside the nation, from domestic criminals and foreign enemies. This is the basic purpose. And what do they use in order to punish or in order to defend the innocent, civil, law-abiding people in their own country? It says in verse 4, it says, If you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. It does not bear the sword. God has not granted it as a servant and minister of God to have that sword for a vain purpose, for a futile purpose. It's not there as an empty showpiece. It's not there for that. It's there to be practical. It's there to inflict punishment or wrath, as he calls it here, upon the one who does evil. It doesn't bear it for nothing. It's not in vain that it carries that sword. The Apostle Paul knew that. Remember that the Jews were looking for a ground to have him put to death. They were looking for a ground or a reason to put him to death, and they kept bringing him before the Roman authorities, and sometimes even they tried to ambush him to assassinate him in secret, right? They were trying to do that. The Jews were trying to do that. Well, when Paul is before Festus, the Roman official, Paul before Festus in Acts 25, notice what he says. Acts 25, verse 10. 
We'll read verses 10 and 11. But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. I have done no wrong to the Jews, as you also very well know. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. But if none of those things is true of which these men accuse me, no one can hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. And it says in verse 12 that Festus granted his appeal to Caesar. Well, what does Paul say here? He says to Festus, a Roman official, a pagan, he worships idols. He doesn't care about the truth. He tells him, if I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. If I am really a criminal and the Jews are right and you deem them to be right, you investigate this and you deem them to be right. If I have done anything like that, then okay, I won't refuse to die. I am worthy of death. He says, why is Paul submitting to that? Hypothetically, why is he submitting to that? Because he knows that there are certain crimes worthy of death, that even God does execute or carry out through the government. And in this case, even a pagan government, because the pagan government is still a minister of God, just as it was in Romans chapter 13. Romans is written to the Romans, right? The Roman Christians in the city of Rome. Where that is the seat of the Roman Empire. There he understands in Romans and here even in Acts that the pagan, unbelieving Roman government still has a remnant of truth in them and as long as that remnant of truth and law-keeping is in them in accordance with the law of God, then they should do what's right in the sight of God. Execute those worthy of death. And of course, it did not happen in Paul's case because he did not deserve to die. And also, our Lord Jesus understood the same. He said in a a misquoted verse, actually, in Matthew 26, 52, he said, All those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. All those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. I say it's misquoted because those who believe that there is no death penalty cite this verse as though Jesus said nobody should be put to death. But that's not the context. The context is that he's telling his disciples, especially Peter, to put the sword back because if you kill someone who does not deserve to die, you're going to die for that. So you better put it back in its sheet. You put the sword away. Put the sword away because if you kill someone who does not deserve to die, because the those who were coming to arrest him did not commit a crime worthy of death. That is the death penalty. So there is no need for him to take up the sword and start killing people. And so he says, if you do that, you will die by the sword. And which sword is that? The sword of the Roman government. Romans 13, 1-7. That's the sword that Jesus meant so the death penalty for those who commit murder we know also to clarify murder is when an innocent human life is put to death apart from as we just saw the government 
investigating and sentencing a criminal to death. It does not include that. When the government puts a convicted criminal murderer to death, that is not murder. That is justice, biblically speaking. That is justice. That's not murder. Also, when warfare occurs and people die in warfare, whether soldiers or the civilians die in warfare, that is also not considered murder. When one nation has war with another nation, that is not murder. We know that to be the case because in Genesis 14, also from the period of the Noahic Covenant, even before the Mosaic Covenant, Abraham lost some of his people and possessions because there were kings who invaded, right? They invaded in the land of Canaan. And then Abraham, what does he do? He takes up 318 of his trained men and he goes out in battle, in warfare, to recover what he lost. That means that warfare itself is not prohibited. It depends on the reason for it, of course. So if there is a just reason for it, then warfare is not murder. If people die in battle, that's not considered murder, biblically speaking. Remember, too, in Luke 3, verse 14, the soldiers who were wanting to repent asked John the Baptist what they should do. And he told them, do not Uh, accuse anyone falsely or take anything from anyone by force and be content with your wages. He told the soldiers to be content with their wages. Now, if they are in the Roman government as soldiers, what are they going to do? They're going to protect their own nation and they're going to protect the people within the nation, right? That's their duty. So that means that John the Baptist understood that there was a legitimate role for soldiers, even pagan soldiers. There was a legitimate role for their occupation. Their occupation was not just helping people in hurricanes and floods. It wasn't that. Now, there is a a sense in which there is national security that could be in jeopardy when that happens, but it wasn't just to give people food to eat. It was to protect their country, the people of their country, from enemies. And John understood that, John the Baptist. That's why he said, be content with your wages. He did not tell them to leave the military, quit the military. Don't you know that it's a sin to be a soldier? He didn't say that. He said, stay there and be content with your wages. Just don't mistreat people with the the power and authority that you have as a soldier. And why? Why is it that murderers should be put to death because we're all created in the image of God. All of us are created in the image of God. That was before the fall, Genesis 1, 26 to 27. God created man in his own image, which includes male and female among humans. Not male and female among animals, but male and female among humans are created in the image of God. That image was passed on from Adam and Eve to Seth, according to Genesis 5, 1 to 5. Seth was also created in the image of God, image and likeness of God. James 3, 9 says that all of us are created in the likeness of God. 1 Corinthians 11, 7 says that man was created in the image of God. These verses are all important 
in Genesis 9, verse 6, and those in the New Testament just cited are important to note that all of us are created in the image of God. That is, before the fall and after the fall, and all of the descendants of Noah, all of the descendants of Noah are created in the image of God, whether it doesn't matter what language we speak or from what nation we are, it doesn't matter if we are male or female, we are all created in the image <coughs> of God. Verse 7. He continues to emphasize, and as for you, be fruitful, multiply, uh, populate the earth abundantly, and multiply in it. We spoke already of what this means. This is necessary, not just for Noah, but for all of us, for all generations to come, until the Lord returns. There's nothing that we are able to do, or going to do, to destroy the earth. And if and one just did a little bit of research on this, one would know that the earth, it is able to sustain billions upon billions of people. People say it's not able to sustain, but it is able to sustain. In fact, over the last uh, 40 to 50 years, the production of food all around the world has increased tremendously, and people's standard of living worldwide has increased tremendously from before 50 years ago, before the 50s and the 60s, the 1950s and the 60s. There are, were many nations that barely produced anything for their own people, let alone for foreigners, and now they produce plenty for their own people and plenty for foreigners, and there's worldwide trade. So the ability of man to sustain himself on the earth is very prolific and abundant. They are able to do so. The earth is not going to be destroyed by the work of man, by the production of man. It's not going to happen. It won't happen. It will continue until God himself destroys it by fire. 2 Peter chapter 3. Now, to assure all of us that this is the way it's going to be, we have verses 8 to 17. To give us this assurance that this is the way it's going to be, 8 to 17. God gives a sign of his word. A sign of his promise. A symbol of his promise. The two in the Bible go together. The spoken word and the sign. The symbol and the spoken word go together, hand in hand. Verse 8. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth. And I establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood. Neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you. Of all successive generations. There we have it. He's talking about us too. Until the world ends. I set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. And it shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth, that the bow shall be seen in the cloud, and I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. 
And God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. How many times does God have to say it? <laughs> Did you notice how many times God repeated the various aspects of this covenant? Never again, never again. It's between you and all the animals, between you and all successive generations, between you and your sons. He says it in various ways to make the point that this earth is going to remain. It will, will never be destroyed by water again. Right. It is an everlasting covenant. And God sets the rainbow as a sign of this. So, when he repeats it again and again, it's meant to give us assurance that this world is sustained by God. It will not be destroyed, completely not destroyed ever again by water. Some look at this and read it superficially and they say, well, we have floods all the time now. We have hurricanes and we have all this happening. It's, he's not talking about local events. He's talking about worldwide. He's not talking about um, a worldwide flood. Uh, he is in this passage, he's talking about a worldwide flood. He's not meaning there will never be a flood of water in this part or that part of the world, in this city or that town. He's not talking about that. He's talking about worldwide destruction by water. And he also is not implying by this that he will never destroy the earth. Right. He's not meaning that he will never destroy the earth. Just read Isaiah 24 or Isaiah 34. Just read 2 Peter chapter 3. Read these kinds of chapters of the Bible, and they are very clearly explaining that God will use fire to destroy the whole world, the whole globe. He will do so. This passage is merely saying he won't destroy the world again with water, but he will destroy the world again with fire. That will happen when Jesus returns. Second Peter chapter 3 is the clearest and most explicit of all the passages. It is a straightforward, plain-spoken, didactic passage, Second Peter chapter 3. He's not using metaphors in Second Peter chapter 3. He's explaining it as it will actually happen. Right. Further, we notice that he says, I set my bow, verse 13. Verse 13, I set my bow in the cloud. There are two ways to look at this. Some interpreters say that there were no rainbows before this because of the condition of the earth, the condition of the climate of the earth. And I do think that the climate of the earth had a difference before the flood than after the flood. Because before the flood, there were men who lived to be seven, eight, nine hundred years old. But after the flood, it's typically the longest is about 100 to 200 years old. That's all, after the flood. And then in our time, 70 or because of strength, 80 years, as it says in Psalm 90, 70 or 80 years because of strength. So there must have been something different in the atmosphere, in the climate, before the flood and after the flood. And I think that that is one of the reasons, or the main reason, for the difference in the lifespan of people. So, it is very possible that there were no rainbows before. But now he is establishing it because there's going to be a change in the climate. And 
because there is a change in the climate, God has chosen to take one of these changes, the rainbow, and to tell us as a reminder that this judgment of water will never happen again. For us to look at the sign and understand beyond the sign the significance of the sign. To understand and be reminded of the significance of the sign. That's the purpose of a sign. The sign is not for us to worship the sign. The sign is not for us to just look at the sign and have a blank stare. The sign is there for us to understand the purpose of the sign. When you see a stop sign, you cannot have on the road. When you see a stop sign, you should not have a blank stare, right? You should not neglect it. You should not say, well, I, can't, I don't know what it means. I'm not going to try to figure it out. If you do that, it'll be perilous for you, won't it? Perilous for you and, who, and everybody else. You have to know the meaning of the sign and then act according to its meaning. And that's the purpose here too. The rainbow is set there for people to understand, to contemplate and understand the spiritual significance of that rainbow. Now, if rainbows did exist before, that doesn't create a problem either because God could just take a sign or something that was a phenomenon of nature and use that as a sign, a way of handling things with the descendants of Noah and all of us. He could do that too. So whether the rainbow existed before or not, it doesn't really matter. The main point of the passage is that God uses it as a sign. Now this will remind us, and it will become more important later, when signs are established from Genesis chapter 17 in the Abrahamic covenant, and then in the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy in the Mosaic covenant, there are signs there too. There are signs and symbols in the Mosaic covenant. What is the relationship between the sign and the people of God? We have to understand what the sign means for it to have any value to us. We cannot have a sign or the rituals associated with the sign, we cannot have them as empty actions. The moment a sign becomes an empty action, it becomes destructive to us. For example, today we have just two. We have the Lord's table and we have baptism. We have the Lord's table and baptism. If we do not understand the spiritual significance of the Lord's table, then it's empty to us, right? It will be empty to us and spiritually perilous to us. It'll be destructive to us. Why should we partake of the Lord's table when we don't partake of it with its true and correct meaning? For the ends that God has for us when we do partake of the Lord's table. If we don't do that, then it is destructive to us. Even destructive to believers, according to 1 Corinthians 11, 27 to 34, 1 Corinthians 11, 27 to 34, it even says in verses 29, 30, 31, and 32, that some of the believers at Corinth were not repenting of their sins, and they became weak and sick, and some of them died. Some of them died. God punished them because they didn't approach the sign with obedience to its true spiritual meaning. 
they didn't repent of sin. The same with baptism. What's the point of being baptized? Being immersed in the water, what's the point if you don't truly believe in what it symbolizes? If we don't truly believe in what it symbolizes, what's the point? All you did was put on a show. All you did was get wet for a few minutes and have to change your clothes. What's the point? What's the point of putting on a show? Aren't we supposed to be people of substance? Are we, are we people of show or substance? We're supposed to be of substance. So quit the hypocrisy, quit putting on the show, and understand the meaning of the sign. The same thing here with Noah and this sign of the rainbow. Understand why it's there. So whenever there's a rainbow again, don't just appreciate its beauty, which is a part of it. Praise God for his creation. But think about what it means and teach your family, teach your friends, teach whoever what it means and bring up these kinds of issues. Bring up the gospel based on this rainbow. Otherwise, what's the point of saying, oh, that's a beautiful rainbow? And then you, keep, you just walk on or move on down the road. What's the point? Understand the spiritual meaning behind the sign. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.